Good morning. There we go. I'm so excited to be with you guys this morning. I really am. Um, I really enjoy being in the pulpit with Valley Bible Church, and every time I'm called upon, it's just a very humbling uh, opportunity, and it's an honor. Uh, and you guys are amazing, by the way. So encouraging. So it's really cool to, to – because even if I mess up, you guys will still say, hey, man, good job. <laughs> Lying. Like, man, you don't church, y'all lying. My name is Pastor Gabe. I'm the pastor of student ministries here at Valley Bible Church. Um, And uh, I told first service, I was like, well, I'm here and nobody's up there with the students. They're kind of just running things by themselves. And a few people killed over in the pews. And that's really not true. I left them with a really cool dude. His name's Manny D'Souza. Manny D'Souza... Uh, is now on staff as the middle school ministries director. So if you see Manny, give him some encouragement, a hug. He's going to need it working with those crazy kids. You know, we're really excited. I'm really excited about what uh, God's going to do through Manny uh, under his leadership in LGP. And, uh, you know, he's been doing student ministry here for 13 years. So he's got a pretty good idea of, of, of how it works. And um, so anyways... If you see him, shake his hand, tell him you love him. When I was about 10 years old, uh, my friends and I were riding our bikes in a spot um, about five miles from my home called Texaco Trails, and it's in Abilene, Texas. uh, Now, many of you who have heard my story, my testimony, you understand I'm from, I'm a a street kid, Uh, grew up running the streets, um, sold drugs. My uncles were uh, members of a Mexican cartel in northern Mexico, and uh, so I kind of had a part in that a little bit um, as a teenager. I just saw a lot of crazy things, but what you don't know about it, before I started getting, before I became that person, um, I was just a regular little kid uh, from Texas, um, and when you're from Texas, that naturally makes you country, okay? Now, not only, okay, this is how country I was. My grandma, I called her nanny. You know what I'm saying? That's country, right? So when you look at this, when you look at me, you got to picture me as 10 years old. I was as country as cornbread, all right? I would run around with no socks and no shoes in the yard with stickers on it, right? I used to ride my bikes, which is, a, which is something we used to do, students, before you guys, now you guys are born with like smartphones. You come out of the womb and you're just like texting and stuff, right? Back then, we used to ride bikes. It was cool. We used to get into mischief that way. We used to jump off of roofs and get into uh, a lot of crazy things, and uh, so uh, being country, you like the outdoors, right? My mama used to say, hey, go outside and play. You've been in the house too much. I used to be like, man, I'm already dark. <laughs> what do you mean too much? <laughs> so my mom would send me outside, and we would get on our bikes, and she'd be like, stay in this, you know, one block radius. Shoot, we'd be like 10 miles down the road getting into stuff, jumping off of things, building ramps and all kinds of stuff. We used to, we used to go to Texaco Trails. Texaco Trails was a spot where we used to ride dirt bikes. Um, some people would ride their bikes there, and we would do crazy stuff over there. But on the other side of the fence of Texaco Trails was Mr. Long's stock pond. And we used to sneak in through the fence and go fishing there until we started hearing gunshots. Then we'd leave. One day was that, you know, be, you know, being outdoors, I, you know, I love to fish. I love to fish. Something you don't know about me, I love to fish. I haven't caught anything in California, though. I haven't, I've trout, and I'm like, what? I don't even know how to fish for trout. I catch bass, catfish all day long, but 
From what I understand, they don't live in the Bay Area. It's weird. Struck out three times. Anyways, I love to fish. I'm actually a pretty good fisherman. Um, so I would like to, I like to fish. And we would go to Texaco Trail. We'd sneak in. And one day we were sneaking in. Uh, I was checking out Texaco. I was checking out Mr. Pond, Mr. Long's pond. Uh, and I noticed that it was gone. And I was like, no. I want to go fishing. So I get on my bike. And I get, closer to the, I get closer to the pond. And I see that it's actually really not gone. It's just dried up. I guess he forgot to pay his water bill. I don't know. Uh, it's dried up all except for about a 50-foot diameter, about three feet deep. And to my amazement, all the fish in the pond were in that little body of water. My eyes lit up. I was like, what? So I'm riding my bike. I'm getting momentum, and I just jump off that sucker. And I fly, and, I get a, and then I just start throwing fish out. I mean, there's bass, there's crappie, and I'm just chunking on I'm yelling at my friends and my stepbrother, get these home, get these home before they die. We're, we're going to have a fish Friday night. I'm throwing, and these were like big fish. They weren't just like little bitty things. They were big fish. I was chunking them over. Next thing I know, as I was throwing fish and trying to catch them, I realized I'm a lot shorter than I was when I first got in this place. And I'm sitting there, and I'm walking in the mud. It's just, I can feel I lost the shoe in the mud, and it's getting really bad. And the next thing you know, it's in my knees, and I'm still throwing fish back as far as I can. The next thing you know, it's at my chest. I must have threw back about 20 fish before I realized something's not right. This is not good. And I turn around to look for help, and the more I struggle and the more I try to get myself out, the deeper I go. And I look back, and my friends and my stepbrother are gone. They were carrying those fish home about five miles from the house. Left me there. I'm 10 years old. I'm just like, whatever. I'm just going to sit here like this. And I stayed there like that for it seemed like an eternity. Until finally, I see them jumping. The yes, help is on the way. And they build a, they, they, they linked arms, pulled me out of the mud. I didn't, realize how, I didn't realize how dangerous that was. I didn't even consider it. Got back on my bike, rode home, all muddy. My mom wouldn't let me in the house. Sprayed me down with a water hose. My stepfather's cleaning the fish out in the ground. I was like, yeah, we about to grub. I was so happy. It was one of those, what were you thinking moments. My mom asked me that with a slap. What were you thinking, son? Well, to be honest with you, I was thinking about eating. I was thinking about that grub, fried catfish. I don't know, but y'all ever had fried catfish in California like we do in the South. It's good. It's some good stuff. Why did I do that? Not to, I was 10 years old. I get it. I didn't have very much sense. But what, what, what possesses us to do some of the things that we do when we risk? I think it has a lot to do with value and worth. You see, to me, the, the, the value and the worth that I placed on the meal that I was going to have tonight, that night, was far greater than the risk of sinking in the mud. That don't make very much sense, does it? Well, it's like that, it's, it's like that with us. You see, risk is always tied to worth. And in our lives, risk is based on how much worth we ascribe to something. You see, it wasn't just jumping off my bike into a pond full of quicksand or quick mud, actually. Jumping off things is in our DNA. 
Risk is in the DNA of every man, woman, and especially child in this building. And it was put there by God, and it was put there for God. The problem is, is that we misplaced it, neglected it, misused it. But I think it's time we get it back. So here's what I'm going to do. Over the next few minutes, we're going to go on a little journey through uh, the latter part of Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 19. I'm going to attempt to make my way down to the end of the chapter. Don't know if we'll get there. Um, And I want to close with an Isaiah 6 illustration. Because I believe in Isaiah 6, we, we get a picture of the only way, the proper way, to ascribe worth to the only one who's worthy. So let's go. Philippians chapter 1. Page is turning. We're ready to go. Opening up the word. Some of you got your smartphones out. I know all those teenagers over there like, I'm already there, Gabe. Right? The rest of us be like, I can't find it. Okay. Philippians chapter 1, starting verse 19. We're going to read all the way through the end of the chapter. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me is to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress in joining the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see uh, you see you, or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened, uh, not frightened at anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. That's a lot. Is it too late to change my mind? Okay, we'll go with it. (laughs) But before we go, let me back up a little bit, because I need to give a little bit of momentum to this passage. So I'm going to read verses 15 to 18, then I'm going to give a little context, and we'll get going. Um, Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Okay, so Paul's in prison. Again, right? How would, it, how would you guys feel as a congregation if our pastors were in prison? Again. That'd be kind of bad, right? But see, that's not what's going on here. Each time, Paul, when he's in prison, he's not sure if he's going to be released or if he's going to be executed. And even when he is free from prison, he is not free from the threats of his life. Okay, but notice his perspective on his entire situation. He's in jail. People are saying, man, a man of God should not be in jail. Paul's in jail. He's in there for the gospel. And some are preaching Christ at a selfish ambition, and others 
are preaching Christ. Why? What was that, Kevin? Had a vain rivalry. They're trying to stir up trouble for Paul. But check out his perspective, though. He's like, I don't care about that. I ain't got no worries. I ain't worried about none. I ain't worried about anything. Why? Because Christ is being proclaimed. I don't care about their motives. All I care about is that Christ is preached. He can see, he sees his circumstances the way we should, through grace-fueled optimism. Is it any wonder that this sentiment comes from the heart of a man who has seen Christ saved through intellect, through power, and through example? You see, Paul has seen Christ saved in even the darkest circumstances of persecution and prison. Paul knows that God will make his name known and that God can use our evil for his good. And we experience this today, too, because in the church, we have our little factions. We have the new reform movement. We have these guys, and then we have the guys that we just stay clear away from. And there's ways that we do church, and there's ways that we don't do church. And our ways are always the right ways, and their ways are always the wrong ways. And the way we preach is the same thing. We have a certain style of preaching, and that preaching is the only preaching that's good. And all the other preaching isn't good because the way we do it is better. And that's what, Paul's, that's what Paul's going on right here. You see, you take one of the leaders of the church, and you take him out, and you have a void of leadership. And nature abhors a vacuum. So naturally, people would get up. People would get up. They're trying to cause trouble for Paul. Others were getting up, and they were saying, man, I'm trying to fill his, gap, fill his shoes, but weren't willing to go the mile to go to prison. But Paul says, I don't care, as long as the gospel's being preached. From Paul's perspective, in the light of the gospel, everything must serve the purpose of the glory of Christ. So isn't it therefore a tragedy that Paul's in prison being persecuted within or unjustly maligned without? Mm -mm. It's a privilege. Paul considers it a blessing to be considered worthy to suffer the cause of Christ. Now this is not the kind of Christianity we end up with. Unless, unless, we experience a profound application of the Christ of cro cross of Christ. Delete that. Cross of Christ applied to our lives. None of us get there on our own. Something radical has to happen in us. We can't see the Christ and the gospel the way that Paul sees it unless we have a radical experience with Jesus Christ. Okay? So I want us to start taking in our perspective this morning. How do we see things? How do we see our circumstances? How do we see church? How do, how do we see the way we do ministry? Because Paul wants us to know something. He wants us to understand something and grasp something. And it's the same thing he wanted the Philippian church to grasp. Paul uses the word worthy several times in his letter to the churches. In Ephesians 4.1, he writes about walking in a way that is worthy of God's call. In Colossians 1.10, he writes about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, he writes about walking in a manner that is worthy of God. I knew that was going to happen. In 2 Thessalonians 1.5, he urges living in a way worthy of the kingdom of God. What does it mean? What does worthy mean? And Paul wants us to know this, that Christ is worth living for. It means ascribing worth. When we command others to live in a worthy way, he means we should live in a way that shows what we believe is of su supreme worth. 
Paul's saying, you need, to work, you need to walk worthy of the gospel. What he's saying there is that you need to live your life in such a way that when people see you, they believe that what you believe is of supreme worth. That when you say, I'm a Christian, you walk in such a manner that when people say, they just sit back and be like, wow, you're willing to do that for Christ? You actually give a tenth of your income? It means living in such a way that Jesus is seen as big, that Jesus is seen as glorious. Let me ask you this question, church. Um, how big is Jesus in your life? How big is he? Because here's what happens. When we have a view of a little Jesus, there's little risk. There's little love for people. There's little sacrifice. If, we, if, if, if Jesus was measured by our willingness to give, our willingness to serve, our willingness to love other people, would Jesus be seen as big? Because a big God, a big, a big Christ, leads to big risk, big sacrifice, and a big love for people, even unlovable ones. You see, in the spiritual economics of Paul, God and his gospel are most important, not Paul and his well-being. Christ has so captivated Paul that Christ has become all to him. So when people preach Christ, whether in pretense or in truth, Paul rejoices that, that Christ is proclaimed. And though some mean to harm Paul, he considers his harm a fair trade for the opportunity to proclaim Jesus. It is a spiritual stability born of a gospel-focused heart that gives Paul peace and contentment and, yes, joy, no matter where he finds himself. Paul serves a big, big God. Verses 18 through 21, here's what it says. It says, yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with faith, that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. And then he says this, for me to live is Christ. Of course it is. We all say that, right? We all say that. It's easy to confess that living is Christ, isn't it? It's, it's a really easy thing to do, right? High schoolers, middle schoolers, to live is Christ. It's kind of cliche. It's real easy. But check this out. I don't want you to move so fast on this because the confession and the conviction don't always go together. Paul's confession erupts from deep conviction. It's more than a Facebook status or one of those little pictures that you post with mountains that says, I love Jesus on Instagram. It's more than that. It's got to be right here. It's not a cliche. It comes from deep conviction of the heart. He is seeing that living could be nothing else but Christ. He's seen it in his ministry over and over again. He saw it in Lydia, who was wealthy, by the way. You go back to Acts chapter 16, you can read how the Philippian church started, and it's Lydia. It started with Lydia. She was a seller of purple goods. And she had a bunch of women back there, and they were working for her, and she was wealthy. She probably had a home in Philippi. She probably had one in Asia. Yet he's seen Christ save when she probably didn't need anything else. What about the slave girl that was demonically possessed? He saw it in her, too. He saw it in the Philippian jailer. Lydia, the slave girl, the jailer, they were all slaves in their own ways to the kind of lives that us men and women choose all the time. And Paul saw the moral brokenness and the spiritual dysfunction of it all. 
but he also saw the joy that comes when the gospel heals, transforms, and restores. Paul himself once lived out the bitterness and malice, persecuting the church that he would later come to love. Then God hijacked his life. The zealous Pharisee became the man, the apostle with the gospel heart. What else do we pursue that has that kind of worth and value, that has that kind of power to change who we are? We've got to ask ourselves this question because what we're putting our stock in, the things that we're risking for, the things that we're sacrificing for, does it have the power to change? Does it have the power to save? And if not, then what's the worth and what's the value? We have to ask ourselves that. So, of course, Paul would say to live as Christ. In the logic of the gospel, there are no other alternatives. When you see grace, when you see the grace that has been afforded to you, there are no other alternatives other than Jesus Christ. There's nothing else. Nothing compares. And that's what Paul's saying for. He's saying, he's saying that this is worthy of living for, that Christ is worthy to live for. That's a deep conviction that's seated in the heart of who Paul is. And as Christians, that, should be our, that we should be identified as such. Every other option is no option at all. When everything, when everything is considered valuable in life, is seen to be nothing in comparison to the glory of Christ, you learn rather well that Christ alone is worth living for. Students, Christ alone is worth living for. I don't care what you see on the TV, what you got on your iPhone, none of that. The shoes on your feet are going to burn up one day. Your possessions, your trophies, your accomplishments, all that means nothing. It's all going to pass. Christ is the only thing worth living for. See, Christ alone is worthy of an entire life's affection and devotions. He is worthy of so much more. In fact, which is why Paul completes his declaration. He says, to live is Christ. That way, to die is gain. Does that make sense? To, Paul says, to live is Christ. If living is Christ, then to die is actually gain. But many of us here, we hold on to our lives and we're afraid of death. Why? Because we're not living as if Christ is everything. You see, Christ is our reward, not heaven. Heaven is just a place. It's a dimension. It's out there. Christ is our reward. He is our inheritance. And if you don't love that, you just want to get, get, out, of a hell jail, get out of hell jail free card, whatever, you're, you're in the wrong business because you can't, have, you can't escape hell without having Christ. You have to look at him and see him as supreme worth. This, he is our prized position. He is our trophy. There is no other alternative. But it doesn't stop there for Paul. Not only does Paul want us to understand that Christ is the only thing living for, it's also the only thing worth dying for. If I am to live in the flesh, he says, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. Really, Paul? You want to die and be with Jesus. My desire is to part and be with Christ, see? For that is far better, absolutely. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. 
so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. In other places, Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If this life is all there is, there's no resurrection, we are definitely the most to be pitied. Because to live is, if to live is Christ, but yet there's nothing after life, there's no resurrection, what do we have? Nothing. There's no hope. There's no gain. So your perspective on what happens after life influences the things in which you place worth to, which you ascribe worth to. You feel me? So you young people, talking about YOLO, you only live once. So I'm going to do my thing. Well, that's right. You do only live once. But you could die twice. <laughs> I got a good amen on that one. You see, there is a greater day coming, a greater reward coming, a greater life coming. And the purpose of this life, while we are here alive, is to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, which holds the promise of life everlasting. Jesus even said, he says, even if you die, you will live, John eleven twenty five. For those united, by, uh, united to Christ by faith, death has no sting, death has no victory, according to 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty five. In fact, to be present with the Lord is actually better than life. The great preacher, D.L. Moody, he once quipped, Someday you'll read in the paper that D.L. Moody has passed. D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. And he said, Don't you believe it? Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. You feel me? You see, death, death is a homecoming for Christians. And Paul sees it as gain because he sees it as a reward for offering himself as a living sacrifice on this side of the veil. Man, I want to get saved again. So in prison, Paul is saying, it would be better to go home. And in the comfort and opulence of Lydia's house, it is still better to go home. Does that make sense? In the comfort and in, in seeing the wealthiness of Lydia and, and, and starting a church in her home, it's still better than this. Christ is still better than anything this world has to offer. I'd still rather go home. And in jail, I'd still rather go home. Because these earthly dwelling places have nothing compared to the mansion that Christ has built for me. So where does this lead? You see, Paul wants us to understand that Christ and his mission, the gospel, are the only thing worth living for and also the only thing worth dying for. But there, there, there's, we, we have to decide on that. We have to move on that. And when we see and understand that Christ is the only thing worth living and dying for, what does it lead to? It's kind of like me. I placed a lot, to me, I didn't even consider it at the time, 10 years old, I was like, man, apparently those catfish were worth living and dying for. I was going to jump off that bike into the mud. I mean, a meal was worth dying for. So much better than that. You see, because it leads to great gospel risk. When you see Christ as a supreme worth and supreme value, our response is a great gospel risk. Let me read it to you. Verse 27 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. You see, the Christian life, the Christian living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is fearless regardless of the situation. And I believe that this concept is difficult, difficult for us uh, because none of us are in here in danger because of our faith. This is something hard for us to grasp and understand because none of you, when you got up this morning and were driving to church and you had your hallelujah music on, nobody was threatening your life. Nobody was plotting to murder you, as we see here with Paul. So it's easy for us. It's easy for us to just say it without deep, convic deep conviction, but it's also harder for us to understand and grasp the concept of living the way Paul did because we're not in danger of our faith. At this point in time, this very moment, even as we become more and more marginalized in the wider culture, it's still highly unlikely that any of us will be martyred for our faith. But there's still plenty of ways that fear and courage apply to our context. A few weeks ago, we had an event here called Silver Ring Thing. It was awesome. It was cool. I think we've seen like 62 students come to Christ. Matter of fact, in a, in a, in a two-week period, in two weekends, we've seen over 120 students respond to the gospel. All right? And many of those leaders were there. Friday night, Saturday night, had a busy work week, and were there the following Sunday. Why? Because they saw Christ. They saw the value. After, this, after the event, I had a chance to hang out with some of the, 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 the crew, actually all of the crew. I went down to the city, and we're hanging out. We're driving out there, and you kind of they were stuck here with us because their, their, their truck broke down. Um, and we were hanging out, and I got to hear some of their story. I got to hear about what they were doing. And these are 19 and 20-year-old kids. Come from, some of them come from good homes. Some of them come from wealthy homes. Some of them got scholarships waiting for them at Bible colleges, secular schools. I talked, the, the three that I talked, the most impressive with, one young lady said she was going to Russia. Another young man is going to Africa to dig wells. He's going to go to Africa and dig wells for people who hate people like him. I don't get that. I don't get how you can leave the comfort of your home and a scholarship behind it, a prestigious Bible college to do ministry here in America where it's safe, and you go and you, you just forget all that. I'm going to go dig wells because they need water over there and they need the gospel. Yet those very same people, they don't care about the clean water they're getting, and they don't care about the message. They want to see them dead. That doesn't make sense to me. They have plenty of opportunities here in the United States, but many of them will be getting on planes after the tour and taking the gospel to some of the most dangerous places on the earth. Why would they do that? Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. From our Western comfort zone, that can be seen as, that can be seen as an extreme example of gospel-fueled courage. Man, that's crazy. But we don't need this sort of confidence in Christ to simply overcome the fear of sharing the gospel with our neighbors, right? Paul talks about marginalization, insults, oppression, persecution, and suffering as if they're gifts. They are granted. We have permission to partake in these. 
to further the cause of Christ, which is the goal we all together should be striving for. You see, when it comes down to it, one day, I prayerfully, you go on to be with the Lord, you'll, be, you'll get in heaven, and you'll see the annals of history. But they're not going to be filled with kings and wars. There will be one story, the heroes will be missionaries, and the victor will clearly be seen as Christ. Knowing this, knowing that, knowing that it's not how, uh, how your shoe game was, or your achievements, or the house you lived in, or the car you drove, or how liked you were. Knowing this, who cares if our friends or enemies mock us? Do not be frightened at anything by your opponents. 128. Be willing to get on a plane, go to dangerous places, be willing to take a pay cut to do the right thing, be willing, no matter who your opponent is, to be fearless. Why? Because this is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation. It is objective evidence of your salvation. Let me say that again. Objective evidence of your salvation. It's what Paul says right here. The lordship of Christ and his supreme worth and the worth you place on him and your, your willingness to risk for his mission and his cause is objective evidence of your salvation and the destruction of those who oppose you. To be opposed because of our faith is a sign of our opponent's destruction. Isn't that ironic? Especially given that it was the Christian's destruction in the early church's persecutors he had in mind. In fact, to be opposed for our faith in Christ is a blessing because it's a sign of our salvation. Are you being persecuted? Are you being ridiculed? So what's it worth to you? I ask you this morning, what's it worth to you? Are we leveraging our resources for the gospel? Are we, you know what? Early childhood department over there needs a lot of help. Children's ministries, LGP, high school, R3. We didn't plan this, by the way. I didn't know that there was, I mean, I knew that this was a volunteer emphasis month, but we didn't talk about this. This just happened. This is the spirit of God moving amongst his people. Is it worth it? Is it worth wiping boogers and telling those little kids about Jesus? Ask Ron Hughes. Are we risking all that we hold dear to make much of Christ? Is he worth it? Because the number one thing that keeps us from living our lives in a worthy manner is because we lack the clarity of who he really is. And to um, clear the fog, so to speak, we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 6. Then I'm going to close. Isaiah's vision of the Lord, Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having, his hand, having in his hand a burning coal that had been taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has cleaned your lips. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. He saw 
Christ in his glory, in his majesty, the great I am. And then he heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And his response, which is the same response as Paul, he was influenced by the Old Testament. He was a Pharisee. Probably had this memorized. Here I am. Send me. And before you think it's too hard, and I'm not asking any of you guys to be missionaries this morning. We're not asking that. God may be. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm just asking you to see Christ in light of who he really is. To be as Isaiah and say, woe to me. Woe is me. You see, because when we see Christ magnified, when we see him on his throne, and we see him as he truly is, we see that we're actually very little. And our view of him may be little at the moment, but when we see him high and lifted up as Isaiah did, we realize that we're not the little ones. I mean, that he's not the little one. We're the little ones. Take the gospel to the children in the early childhood department and the elementary department. Thank God for these men who are sitting over here who have stood in the gap the last three months and sacrificed family time. Why? Because Christ is worth it. And because Christ is worth it, they realize he's worth living for, he's worth dying for, they're willing to, there's great risk in there. I thank God for the men and women who are week in and week out of this church, burdened, hearts hijacked by God, filled with compassion, leveraging their time and resources for the gospel. I'm going to close with this. Last night, my son doesn't know I'm doing this. It's the way God works. I dropped my son at a party off at a party yesterday, um, like three o'clock, and then it's like ten. And he calls me up. And if I get a little emotional, just forgive me. Um, but he calls me up and he says he's so happy, he's really excited. And I'm like, man, what happened? Your girlfriend gave him a kiss or something. He's like, I'm about to go pick him up. He's so happy. He's like, Dad, Dad, I just led one of my friends to the Lord. He's 14 years old. He's a minority at that party. Most of those kids don't know Christ, except for a few of them. And he tells me stories like, Dad, they, were, they had weed and they were smoking weed, and, and I just felt God telling me I need, to, I need to confront them on it. And in an opportunity, in a moment, he had a choice to make. I could be liked and accepted, and go along with it, 14 years old. But because I have a big God, and because Christ has been big in my family's life, I'm going to stand for it. And he told them, he confronted them, and he made them throw it away. And one got mad to their destruction, but the other repented. And if a 14-year-old boy could do it, I don't care if he's a pastor's kid, but if a 14-year-old boy can do it, can be so consumed with the glory of Christ. What about us? What about us? We've either misused it, misplaced it, but church, it's time. It's time we see Christ magnified in our marriages, magnified as fathers and mothers. I don't care if you're liked. It's not about being liked as parents. It's about loving your kids. So who will go? Who will go to the family that is on the verge of completely falling apart? Who will go? 
send me. Husbands and fathers, let your response be, send me. Wives, don't wait for your husbands to get off the couch. Send me. Who will go to the single mother and offer hope and encouragement? Here I am. Send me. Who will go to the early childhood department and wipe boogers? Send me. Who will go to the, lo- who will go to the lost with a message of hope? Here I am. Send me. Who will go to the unlovable middle school student who cuts and secretly wears, and wears long sleeves because they're afraid to show their forearms? Send me. Who will go to the high school student who's riddled with apathy and needs a spark in their life? Send me. Who will go to the young woman riddled with guilt? Here I am. Send me. Who will go to the person dying of cancer and tell them that this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison? Here I am. Send me. Send me. That's what our response should be. Who will go? There's an enlistment ministry waiting for you. But it'll only be, it'll only be possible and you'll only move if you see Christ as Isaiah saw him and as Paul saw him and say that, that Messiah is worth living for. And that Messiah is worth dying for. And because of that, I'm going to risk my comfort. Many of you are feeling called by God right now but your comfort is holding you down. The comfort, your comfort is your prison. Let me tell you something. Calling trunks comfort any day of the week, hands down. But Father, I love you. And I know that in myself, I have nothing good to offer. It's kind of like the gospel of uselessness. You don't need me, but you want to use me. And you want to use us. There are many in this room, young and old, Lord, who might maybe have lost, maybe just their vision is being blurred of who you really are. And they can't see you. I pray they have a throne room experience as Isaiah did. They can see you high and lifted up. That your glory would be magnified this morning. For the unbeliever, I know you're in this room. And where you sit, you've been skeptical your whole life, but something has happened to you. Something has changed. God has opened your eyes. Don't let this moment pass you by. There's going to be, I'll be up here. Other pastors, I'll be up here. Come talk to them. Let them show you. Let them help you. Don't let guilt strangle you for those who are just riddled by it. Don't let anything keep you from Christ this morning. Don't let anything keep you from seeing God as he truly is. Father, I pray that Valley Bible Church will be a place in which Christ is exalted, that the people, the members of this congregation can say with Paul, to live is Christ. That way, to die is gain, and that we would walk out these doors living our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.